Buongiorno. Oh, very good. I can keep on talking Italian. That's good. That makes me feel at home. But I guess I will need to try to talk, to use my broken English, and I hope that you will bear with my Italian accent. And um, it's a great privilege to be with you and to be part of this important conference on the Reformation. And uh, it's appropriate that this year we... <coughs> Um, we think about the legacy, the enduring legacy of the Protestant Reformation as we look back 500 years ago, as well as as we look forward to the next uh, whatever God has installed for us, but uh, wanting to be faithful to the gospel, to the recovered uh, gospel as it was recovered five uh, centuries ago. Uh, my uh, topic this afternoon uh, has to do with the Roman Catholic doctrine teaching of grace. And I will briefly introduce the, the topic by um, highlighting some of the problems that we have when dealing with uh, Roman Catholic language. And then basically the, the, the talk will be divided in two parts. One, looking at more traditional understandings of grace in Catholic theology, as well as, <clears throat> second part, dealing with more modern, that is, post-Vatican II, uh, contemporary views of grace in Roman Catholic theology. And then, um, uh, bringing some examples on how it affects the way in which the Catholic Church sees evangelism, sees salvation, sees interfaith, interreligious dialogue, and so on and so forth. And our second, our second talk after the first one will uh, briefly touch upon the issue of grace as it relates to justification by faith. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church has res responded to the Protestant Reformation with the Council of Trent, and then more recently, uh, with the, in the context of the ecumenical dialogue, uh, it has um, again uh, invested time and er energy to um, update or redefine, reconfigurate its own language of justification. And so we need to understand what is at stake, what is at stake there. Uh, br briefly, there are three um, um, websites you can refer to if you want more information, more materials on these topics. One is, uh, is the Reformation over with a statement which I'll be talking about uh, in more details tomorrow. Uh, the second one is the reformandinitiative.org. This is an, in, an initiative aimed at equipping evangelical leaders, theologians, apologists, communicators of the gospel in grappling with uh, Roman Catholic teaching, Roman Catholic theology and practice, given the fact that Catholicism is a global issue. Wherever you go, you find the Catholic Church there, from north to south, from west to east. Um, it is uh, to be found everywhere. So it's not only a regional issue, although in some of our countries like mine, it is the issue uh, for uh, evangelical Christians to deal with, but given the fact of the global nature of the Catholic Church, wherever you go, you find it. And so we need um, <coughs> opportunities 
like the Reformand Initiative to train our pastors, our leaders, our apologists, our communicators of the gospel to understand what is at stake uh, in Catholic theology and practice. And then vaticanfiles.org, um, you'll find more than 140 reports, articles on uh, Catholic teaching, theology, documents, events, trends, all assessed from an evangelical perspective. So lots of material you can uh, freely use. When we talk about uh, Roman Catholic theology and practice, we have to come to terms with the fact that uh, the vocabulary that we use and the Catholic Church uses is the same. Grace, gospel, faith, cross, Jesus, heaven, <clears throat> heaven, and so on and so forth. The language, the vocabulary, the terms are the same with some differences. But basically, the bulk of our language is the same as far as the words are, are concerned, as far as the phonetics is concerned. The sounds are the same. But when we dig a little bit deeper into the language, we soon find that in spite of the fact that the language is the same, the same sounds, phonetically speaking, we are meaning completely different things. I don't know if you ever had a conversation with a Catholic friend and you start talking about something of a religious interest and uh, you soon realize that he understands what you're saying. He uses the same language that you're using. But then as you move on in the conversation, at a certain point, he or she makes a claim that shows that you are on very different worlds. So similarities in sounds, differences in contents. So we have to go beyond the mere attraction of having and using the same words into the task of analyzing, assessing what the content of these words is all about. And of course, as gospel people, our responsibility and privilege is to have the Bible defining the contents of our words. Not only the use of words as sounds, but also the content of these words must be biblically based and biblically driven. Grace is one of those words. Oh, I have to, first of all, yes. Grace is one of those words whom, uh, which needs to be defined before we can use it uh, properly. That's it. Uh, and it, given the centrality of the word and the message of grace in the gospel, we have to apply particular attention on how we understand the word grace. A couple of examples. <clears throat> when the, the Pope, the present Pope, Pope Francis, speaks of mercy 
and he often speaks of mercy. Actually, mercy is by far the most spoken word by Pope Francis. He likes the word mercy. The whole pontificate, the whole papacy, the whole reign of Pope Francis is centered around the word mercy. And many Christians around the world are saying, are impressed by the fact that he's using the language of mercy. But if you try to understand what he's saying when using the word mercy, you soon will realize that he's talking about an unlimited, boundless, accepting, inclusive embracement of God towards every person in spite of their beliefs, in spite of their standing before God and the Bible and the gospel. And therefore, he's using this word, which is a biblical word, with, without biblical boundaries, which in the Bible, the word mercy is always related to God's love, God's holiness, God's judgment. And uh, if, you, if you detach the word from the, uh, the network of, meeting, of meanings, the, the web of meanings, which is inherently referred to, you lose the significance of it. A similar thing happens with grace. When we think about the Roman Catholic understanding of grace, we have to do a little bit of historical work. Catholic Church is an historical institution. Everything that is related to it has a history. And so we have to go back at least as far as the pre-Reformation times are concerned. We're focusing here on the Reformation. So when the reformers were addressing the issue of how to receive God's grace, what was the problem for men to receive uh, God's grace as sinners? They were um, dealing with this kind of approach centered on the nature-grace relationship. And uh, the, uh, the framework they were dealing with uh, largely depended on the account of that relationship suggested by a um, very important medieval theologian like Thomas Aquinas. Now, to put it simply, Thomas Aquinas uh, wanted to give a Christianized account of reality, the world, the created reality, man, sin, salvation, which would um, be based on uh, what the Greek philosophers, and namely Aristotle, had taught in the past. And building on that teaching, uh, trying to Christianize it, trying to give it a Christianized form with Christianized language. So he took it for granted that when we deal with the world, we have to take nature as Aristotle defined it. Nature means whatever is around us and what, what the, the, the world we are part of. Everything that is created is part of nature. And nature is not in, in and of itself uh, touched by grace. Grace is something that comes on top of it. Grace is something that is put on top of nature. Nature is defined by what Aristotle and the Greek philosophy, philosophy used to teach. The Christian message is just an addition to what 
Greek philosophy taught. And so the, the famous um, principle of Thomas Aquinas is that grace that not, does not abolish nature, but perfects it. Grace does not abolish, transform, does not change, does not uh, create a new reality, but elevates what nature is already in and of itself. It elevates it, it perfects it, it gives it a more elevated and added value. And uh, In, 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 in uh, understanding the reality of nature and grace in this way, he introduced in Christian theology, or he contributed to introduce in Christian theology, a kind of dualistic tendency. On the one hand, this is what belongs to nature, as defined by philosophy. On the other hand, on top of it, there is something that grace contributes significantly and uniquely. But grace is something that is added on nature. You see, in this scheme, what, what is lacking is that there is no sense of the tragic reality of sin. Nature by itself is capable of being elevated by grace. In and of itself, nature, man, the human beings and so on are capable in themselves to be elevated, to be added to the new reality of grace. Uh, in a very important uh, um, title of a, of a chapter of the Roman Catholic Catechism, the 1992 Catechism, uh, the title that is explains this a view of the relationship between nature and grace entitles that section Homo Capax Dei. Man is capable of God. Man as he is, is capable to be, receive God's grace and to be elevated to the realm of grace. There is a sense of optimism on man's abilities. There is a sense of a lack of the, a tragic view of sin, a defective view of sin which uh, does not account for the tragic total um, depravity of man. And therefore, salvation is seen as a kind of cooperation, cooperative effort between nature and grace. Nature is in itself capable of being elevated. There is no sin, although recognized, recognized, is more seen in terms of being a wound or a um, sickness. And, but nature in itself has the ability to receive God's grace and to be elevated. And in doing that, uh, nature, that is man, can cooperate with God's grace in order to be elevated. There is a synergistic effort. There is something that nature contributes in order to be elevated by God's grace. God's grace is not something 
external or something that totally affects its own operations. Grace is something that comes from the bottom and elevates nature, which is in itself capable of being elevated. So there is an optimistic view of man's reality and a defective view of salvation. And what stands in between nature and grace is the church. The church with its sacraments is the channel by which God's grace elevates human nature. And so the church becomes essential in order for grace to be channeled to a needy nature. Grace is not come, coming from God himself, sovereignly and uh, directly from God. God, in, in this view, chose the, the church, the institution of the church, to be the administrator of his grace, so that as man is capable of being elevated, the church stands in between God and man to channel God's grace to nature, to humankind. And the sacraments, baptism and uh, most importantly the Eucharist, are the ways in which God's grace is given to man. So the reformers were uh, arguing against this understanding of grace, saying and reaffirming the fact that nature and grace in between or in, in, in their relationship, there was something missing. The, the grand scheme of things was not to be understood as only implying a realm of grace and on top of it, the addition of grace channeled by the church, but nature in itself had undergone a massive, drastic, dramatic fall. And sin, by entering the world, had destroyed the cap any capacity of, on man's side to be elevated. In sinning, man lost their ability to do anything in order to receive God's grace. Apart from God's grace, sovereignly and externally reaching out in order to raise from the dead what was lost. And in doing so, they also reaffirmed the fact that the channel through which grace comes to us is only secondarily the body of believers. But Christ is the truly God and truly man standing in between a lost mankind, a fallen and lost mankind, and a, a holy God. Christ is the only mediator between man and God. He was fully God and fully man in order to be the mediator between God and man. And the church is no longer the administrator of God's grace, standing in between, but is the creature of the word, is the assembly of those who believe, is the group, is the community of those who have been saved by God, is the community of the witnesses of 
those um, who have received the uh, gospel of grace. You see, they were, be, they were confronted with this kind of framework, undermining the fact that man has the ability to contribute to, to their own salvation by receiving the sacraments of the church, which was thought of as being the mediator between God and man. They were undermining all this framework by highlighting the fact that in, 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 being you, in being fallen sinners, we have lost that capacity to cooperate. We have lost that capacity to be elevated. And God comes to us with sending his son so that those who believe in him can be saved. Not by contributing, they cannot contribute to anything because they are lost, we are lost in our sins. But by receiving by grace alone, through faith alone, the gift of salvation. So <clears throat> there is a sense in which the Catholic Church, when, they, when thinks about grace, thinks about this addition of grace granted to the realm of nature by the operations of the church. And that's why the church is so central in the Catholic account of the gospel. Because God's grace comes to us through the channels of the church. And so if you are disconnected from the church, you are in this account disconnected from God's grace. Because the only channels of God's grace come through the sacraments of the church. God is not directly giving out his grace, so to speak, but he delegates the church. He uh, gives out his grace through the channels of the sacraments. They were reaffirming the fact that without God's grace, we are totally lost in our sin, totally incapable of doing anything. And instead of arguing for a synergistic view of salvation, whereby God's grace is one contributor and our abilities are the other contributors and salvation is the outcome of that cooperation. Something coming from God, something coming from us, salvation being the composite outcome of that encounter. The reformers would say God's grace is entirely a gift of God and from God that we cannot deserve, we cannot contribute in any sense. We only have to receive it. Now, if we um, quickly move on to what happened 50 years ago at Vatican II. Vatican II is the most important event in present-day Roman Catholic history. 1962, 1965, I was not even born there, but some of you were, were, <laughs> were born. It's the most important event that uh, is shaping the Catholic Church in the modern contemporary world. And uh, at, at that council, there was a kind of updating of that old Thomistic model, which we refer to uh, earlier on in our, in our talk. Uh, 
Vatican II introduced an even more optimistic view of man and an even more problematic view of grace. It introduced an even weaker sense of sin and uh, it stretched the uh, sense of this embracing power of grace, reducing again the uh, importance of an already defective view of sin. What I'm saying it can be captured uh, in this in, uh, phrase by French theologian Henri Bouillard. Grace does not come from outside, he says. It is not something that is added to the realm of nature. It is rather something that lies within nature. Nature, in other words, doesn't need to receive it from outside of, himself, of itself, but rather it needs to discover it from within. Whereas the Thomistic account of nature and grace still had a view whereby grace needed to be added on top of nature. In other words, for to according to Thomas, uh, nature was capable of being elevated, but without grace, it could not be elevated on itself. It needed the help of an external source, adding something to the status and the condition of nature. Vatican II introduced an even more optimistic view, whereby grace is seen as belonging to the very nature, very nature of nature, belonging to the very essence of nature. Grace lies within nature. What are the problems here? Grace, in this modern view of the relationship between nature and grace, swallows nature. Everything is grace. Everything is grace. There is an even, le even less tragic view of sin. We're all part of this graced world. We all come to uh, in existence in an already graced status. We are in a state of grace because we are human beings. I could talk about you know, the development before and around and after Vatican II, Karl Rahner, Hans Hunz von Balthasar, major towering figures in Roman Catholic theology arguing that as human beings, we are in a, already in a state of grace. We are born in a, in a graced, already uh, graced uh, status. And so grace is not something that comes to us from outside of us, but it is already part of who we are. And so Vatican II and Karl Rahner and uh, more modern trends would argue that uh, grace is already part, is already part in, of every human being. Talking about anonymous Christians. Christians can be divided in two categories. Those who are consciously aware of being Christians and those who are 
anonymous Christians. That is, they don't even don't know that they are Christians. Why? Because perhaps they believe in other religions, in other gods. They tend, they follow other ideologies. But because they are human beings, and human beings is defined by being already a recipient of grace, inherently recipient of grace, grace is operating within that human being. Whether or not he is conscious of it, whether or not he is aware of it, whether or not he agrees with it or disagrees with it. You understand that the Catholic Church has expanded immensely its view of grace, not only considering it a, a gift given on top of nature, administered by the, the Church through the sacraments, but it has shifted the framework into thinking that grace lies within nature. And therefore, it doesn't need to come from outside, it only needs to be unfolded from within. And irrespectively from whether or not one professes the Christian gospel. Because it is dependent not on what we profess and what we believe, but is dependent on who we are as human beings. I'll show you a couple of, uh, an example of how it works in present-day Catholic understanding on how grace uh, envelops and shapes the world. Okay. And this is based on Vatican II, Vatican II teaching. Now, we have to think of a, of, a of a series of concentric circles. Do you understand this? A series of concentric circles. No? And uh, at the very center of this circle, uh, we find the Catholic Church, which is the most perfect uh, um, body of people who receive God's grace in its fullest measure. The Catholic Church is no longer committed to a view whereby you can be outside of God's, of God's grace or you can be inside. You can be a recipient of God's grace or you can be a refuser of God's grace. It has shifted from that paradigm in or out, yes or no, in grace or out of grace, into a gradualist paradigm whereby we're all included in God's grace, in God's grace, in different ways, in different measures, according to the position in which we find ourselves in with regards to the Catholic Church. And those who belong to the Catholic Church are those who receive the fullest measure of God's grace through the sacraments. But Vatican II thought of uh, those who do not belong to the Catholic Church, those who are the non-Catholic Christians, the Protestants, the Evangelicals, the Eastern Orthodox, 
And uh, whether uh, in the previous uh, account of things, those people were considered as being heretics outside of God's grace because they were outside of the boundaries of the Catholic Church, which was considered as being the only channel through which God's grace could be received. So if you, were, if you happen to be outside of the Catholic Church, you happen to be outside of the sphere of God's grace. Vatican II introduced the idea that this is no longer the case. You can still be the recipient of God's grace, even though you are not juridically, canonically, theologically member of the Catholic Church. Why? Because God's grace lies in you. And if you belong to the Catholic Church, you will receive God's grace in the fullest measure possible through the sacraments. But if you are outside of the juridical, canonical boundaries of the Catholic Church, you are still receiving God's grace in a lesser way. Non-Catholic Christians are considered as separated brethren, and their communities and churches, places where God's grace can be known in a real way. Lesser way than the Catholic Church, but still real way. Vatican II then deals with the Jews and the Muslims, the monotheistic religions. Whereas in the previous paradigm, both Jews and Muslims were considered as being outside of God's grace, outside of the, of the gift added to nature by the operations of the church. In Vatican II, post-Vatican II Catholic theology, they are considered as people in a state of grace, not in spite of them, of their beliefs, but because they are human beings. And uh, they share with the Catholics the view that we have one God and, we, and they worship the same God as we worship, according to Vatican II. And therefore, grace is operating in them even though they are not even Christians. Why? Because grace lies within us, and it is something that um, cannot be, uh, is always part of who we are. But Vatican II also changed the view of other religions. In, in the previous uh, century, and for lo a long time in Catholic history, peoples of other religions were considered as lost pagans. Vatican II considers uh, non-Christian religions as friends and uh, uh, religions whereby God's grace can be known in a significant way, not the fullest way possible, not the best way possible, but still in a significant real way. But then it, it, open, it opens up the, uh, um, the picture to the people of goodwill. You see a series of concentric circles. God's grace works out his operation not only through the channels of the church, that's the old view, but God's grace is inherently part of us and it works out its operations from within. Of course, the Catholic Church is still there 
they still teach that in order to receive God's grace in the fullest measure possible, you need to go through the sacramental system of the church. Baptism, the Eucharist, confession, etc. The seven sacraments. They, they, these are the seven channels through which God's grace can be received in its fullest measure. But those who are outside of the system, they are not outside of God's grace. Not even non-Catholic non Christians, not even Jews and Muslims, not even people of other religions, but even people of goodwill, agnostics, atheists, indifferent people, because they are human beings, the view is that, that God's grace must be in them. And somehow working through them. The task of the Catholic Church is to call these people to move closer to the center in order to receive God's grace in a fuller way. But by intending, by meaning that if they stay where they are, they are not outside of the sphere of grace. You see, it is a very universalistic outlook that speaks about the Catholic universal embracing view of the Catholic Church, which is still a church, still uh, teaches that the church is necessary in order to receive God's grace in the fullest way, not in the only way. And that's why the present Pope, Pope Francis, a couple of years ago, he was interviewed by the editor of a prominent Italian daily newspaper, La Repubblica. And this man, the editor, the journalist, is an atheist. He doesn't believe, actually says he is certain there is no God. And uh, in, a, in, in, in talking to this man, uh, the... Uh, well, the, 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 the editor, the journalist, asked uh, the Pope, uh, Your Holiness, uh, do, you ha do I have to become a Christian in order to, to be a good man? I don't believe in God, but do you think that I need to become a Christian? If, if there is a God, I'm not sure if there is a God, but in case there is a God, should I... Do I need to become a Christian in order to be in relationship with him? What a wonderful opportunity to talk about the fact that we all need to be reconciled with God. We all need to respond to the good news of the gospel. And we all are, in our nature, we are fallen beings, sinners, children of wrath. And the Pope replied saying, no, 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 you just follow your conscience. You follow your conscience. And in following your conscience, you will be all right. I don't want you to become a convert. I don't want you to change your religion. I want you to follow your conscience. Now, if you don't understand this picture in the background, these words would not make sense to you. But if you have this picture in the back of your mind, you understand that it is 
actually applying this paradigm. He's saying, wherever you are, you may be a, a man of goodwill. Of course, I would like you to move forward to the center in order for you to receive a fuller measure of grace. But if you stay where you are, well, you can still receive God's grace because God's grace is inherently part of who you are. And so you follow your conscience. You don't believe in God, okay, but you have a conscience. You follow it and it will lead you forward. You see, when we talk about grace in, in Catholic theology, we are talking about this universalistic Catholic embracing of the world, whereby God's grace is thought of as being the engine of the world, the inherent characteristic feature component, element, defining, constitutive element of nature. And it unfolds from within and still needs the church in order to be perfected, in order to be expressed in its fullest way, but doesn't need. It, it has lost the, the sense of people being lost without Christ, it has lost the sense, the urgency of people needing to hear the gospel in order to respond in repentance and faith. It has lost the view whereby if we don't accept, if we don't follow Christ, we are lost for eternity. This view is very capable of being attractive to secular people, attractive to people of different religions, attractive to our postmodern uh, mindset whereby ultimately we will all end up in the same place. And this vision leads us to where a prominent Catholic theologian, Hans Urs von Balthasar, when asked, what about hell? If grace is part of who we are and ultimately it will lead us to a universal salvation. What about hell? Von Balthasar famously replied, hell is a real place, but hell is empty. And that's the outcome of this picture, brothers and sisters. If you endorse this view of grace, ultimately we'll be all there. And the Catholic Church has a interesting uh, way of looking at the, at the afterlife. You know, the, this old medieval doctrine of purgatory, a third place in the afterlife, hell, heaven, and purgatory. And much of the uh, Reformation reaction against the Catholic Church was centered on that belief that after we die, we need to spend time in purgatory purifying our souls in order to make them fit for heaven and to be purified before entering heaven. But now this old medieval doctrine fits in very well in our postmodern context because they are saying if you don't believe in Christ now, 
if you don't, are not part of the Catholic Church now, perhaps you will have to spend more years and time in purgatory in order to be purified later. But the end result, the ultimate result, is that the grace of God will envelop and embrace everything. And there's going to be no one who will be excluded from it. Now, that's a very appealing picture for our world, but also a very troubling teaching that conflicts with basic gospel truths related to the fact that we are sinful creatures, the fact that outside of Christ we are lost in our sins and trespasses, and outside of faith in Christ, our, our future is not a future of grace and love. It's a future of judgment. 